0: Hi, thanks again for tuning into the podcast, asking for a friend. We know there are hard questions, both from people inside and outside the faith that can easily go unanswered. This could be due to certain feelings like the fear of asking or the fear of rejection. It could also be maybe that you just don't know who to ask. This podcast is designed to engage with those of us who are searching for answers. Today's episode, we have Josh, Bev, and Courtney. And the question that they're going to dive into is Should Christians practice mental health and emotional wellness? They'll explore what the Bible says and interject their own personal stories on the subject. At Life Church, we value authenticity and understand that when we explore certain topics, we may not all see eye to eye but it's important for us to still have the conversation. This is a great episode. I love the content that they cover. So take a listen.
1: This is episode two. Um, I have two guests with me today that I'm excited to uh, have a conversation with about this subject. Uh, we have Bev Pospisil, who is a seasoned veteran here at Life Church with our podcast. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist from Cedar Rapids, Iowa and she currently practices at House of Hope in Cedar Rapids. Also, I have Courtney Meisner here, who is a student of emotional health and a professional speaker on the subject, specifically emotional health and boundaries in the workplace. So we have a powerhouse couple here. She's also my wife, so kind of an important detail. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, The title or, or the question we are asking... Um, is should Christians practice mental health and emotional wellness? So before we dive into that question, Bev, can you share with us exactly what mental illness is?
2: Sure. According to the American Psychiatric Association, um, mental illnesses are health conditions that affect you emotionally, thought-wise, or behaviorally. And there are a significant amount of people who are affected in one way or another by mental illness. According to their statistics, one out of five people in the United States has a mental illness and one out of 24 has a serious mental illness. So with those kind of numbers, we know it's part of um, we know it's part of our church family. we know it exists and it's really great to be able to talk about it.
1: What would make it serious from just a mental illness? What would what would make it in the serious
2: level? Mm-hmm. I think mental illness kind of is on a spectrum. And so we can have depressed mood, we can have moderate depression, or we can have severe depression. And that's measurable based on tests that we can give people. But sometimes we just know if we're starting to have thoughts that are incredibly negative, that are suicidal, that's a very serious mental illness. If we have um, anxiety that leads to panic attacks that keeps us from being able to function, keeps us from being able to go to school, keeps us from being able to go to work, keeps us from being able to be involved in our life or with our family, that's a serious mental illness.
3: Is there a distinction between the emotion of sadness and depression?
2: Sadness is a component of depression, but there are other characteristics that um, are present usually when there is depression. There is oftentimes um, negative self-beliefs, an overwhelming sense of guilt, um, Either sleeping too much or not being able to sleep, um, maybe eating too much, not being able to eat. So there are a lot of behavioral things that you can see that help to measure. Is this just sadness based on an experience that somebody's going through, or is this does this fit the um, guidelines for what would be called diagnosed diagnosed as depression?
3: So I was thinking about. Um... I've been open and vocal before about how debilitating my postpartum depression was. And one of the things that I found the most difficult was trying to decide, am I depressed or am I just sad? Mm -hmm. So that's why I had asked for that clarification.
2: Mm -hmm. A lot of times when people are actually experiencing depression, they can't come up with a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, I will hear people say, my my marriage is fine. My family is fine. I haven't experienced anything traumatic recently. Haven't experienced any losses recently. I just feel really, really sad, and I cry a lot. Yeah. And that, you know, I I listen and I think this could be depression talking. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's 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 answer the question uh, just right up front, and then we can uh, have the conversation from there. But um, should Christians practice? mental health, and emotional wellness. Yes or no?
2: Absolutely yes. (laughs) That's an easy answer for that one. And the reason is because mental illness can be very painful Mm -hmm. and people can suffer greatly. Not only do people suffer, but their ability to be their best, and to interact with other people, and have loving relationships, and be engaged in their family, and their workplace, and their social life. All of that can be hindered by mental illness, and it's not—it's um, not separate from Christians. It's not something that doesn't touch the Christian um, family. It is very present amongst Christians.
3: I agree. Um... I think that it is common to hear language within Christian communities, uh, even here at Life Church, to hear people say they want to do life together. And I've often thought, what does that mean? Does that mean that you want to do life with me when it's easy? Or do you want to do life when I'm in the trenches? A lot of times, I don't think people are as excited to explore what is really difficult in people's lives. However, it seems like that the church and Christians should be the place that someone can safely say, I'm really struggling and I need help. So my answer is yes, because I think that the more the culture changes within Christianity and within faith-based organizations to have a more open dialogue about mental health and mental illness— and more Christians say, yes, I'm really struggling with this, the church will actually start to feel more like the home that everyone, that that is, you know, the cute catchphrase that you see out front or on the website. So I think that we should practice emotional health and emotional wellness and talking about these things and being honest about the struggles that we have with our mental health in order to, shift the culture of the church to the ideal that it's after, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I I think we all three have different church backgrounds. Um, But for me, um, I grew up in a, in a church where it was stigmatized Mm -hmm. the whole idea of mental illness and that Christians should just be able to kind of just pray through it um, either for supernatural healing or just like pray through it and that you'll survive. And, and which it's more just like plowing through it because, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, up until recently, I actually feel like the American church is well, because mental illness is affecting pastors and we see it all the time, but up until recently, um, it literally was, let's just, let's just pray it away. Um, but I am very encouraged lately. I feel like there's a heightened awareness, and um, and this is obviously a part of that too. So I don't know, like what, was it was it talked about in your family? Was it talked about in your church experience?
2: You know, it wasn't talked about in my family, and in I did a lot of pretending. I have a mental illness in my background, and so I really faked it and pretended for a long time. It's like. That was the part of me that I didn't show it other people because there was a lot of shame wrapped around the idea that I wasn't just able to pray it away or I wasn't just able to think it away or um, engage in other activities and then just stop feeling the way I was feeling. So um, my heart goes out to people when I know they're pretending or I know they don't feel safe sharing what they're dealing with. It's a real lonely thing.
3: Yeah, same. I was raised in a Southern traditional denomination that actually didn't have instruments. So I married, you know, a worship pastor to the, I think, great trouble of my grandma. She's still probably praying for us to get saved, honey. (laughs) But um, no, there was no conversation around mental illness. But it was less, I I would say, a part of my... Church upbringing and more of just the culture of my family of of strong women of that we don't feel sorry for ourselves and that you know sadness and weakness were just not characteristics that defined what a strong woman was and I come from I mean Josh knows this I come from a lineage of really educated really strong women and we just didn't have time to be sad and so that's yeah I had a really unhealthy understanding of what. It meant to be an emotional being, but it meant to feel things deeply and whether or not they were okay. And so my depression journey was largely after we had all of our children is when I struggled the most and I hid too. And what was interesting about that time was we were also traveling across the country and um, I was a pastor's wife. And so it just didn't fit the narrative for the pastor's wife, you know, to be melancholy. You're too blessed
1: to be depressed.
3: Yeah, melancholy and on her way to becoming a full-blown alcoholic. You know, like that story, that story doesn't look, isn't what I think people were wanting for their new worship pastor in Cedar Rapids. So yeah, lots of hiding.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So Bev, what does, what do you see in the Bible as far as um, advocating for, emotional wellness?
2: I like to look at um, the example of how Jesus um, interacted with people who were wounded or who were hurting. And um, Jairus just talked about the story of the Good Samaritan yesterday, and that one has been going through my mind, too, as such a great example of what it means to care for your neighbor. You know, he was willing to um, reach out and, and touch the, the person who was wounded and lift him and put him on his donkey and care for him and take him to the inn and, you know, provide for his well-being. And I think that example has a lot to say with how we as Christians can um, Come alongside of those who are dealing with any kind of illness, any kind of sickness, um, particularly those that are actually like they don't they're not like a broken leg that you can see visually, but they're very much real and they're very much affecting the person.
1: Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And um, I love this quote. Um, by a cultural apologist, Jim Dennison, in regarding to that verse, he says, reason, he says, renewing the mind is an ongoing, dynamic, ever-changing task. It requires listening for lies, catching them, and replacing them with truth. Renewing your mind can be done but it requires understanding, work, vigilance, and commitment. So it's not like just this blanket statement it, 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 that 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 almost feels like unattainable. It's just like like you can just flip a switch of like, okay, time to time to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it it takes work and it takes help and people and resources and um, and so and so I love that because he he, he was able to, to to really bring this this verse to light for me um, because. We do need a community, and sometimes you need to seek medical attention for uh, the type of illness that you have.
2: I love that scripture. I I, I, uh, use it all the time. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My experience was I knew what I was supposed to know, but I was dealing with a chemical imbalance that— made it difficult for what I knew to be what I was trying to know to 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 settle into my heart if that makes sense it's like my thoughts couldn't line up with what I knew to be truth and so I was taking medication for depression and then by faith I decided you know, I received a prayer, I'm going to stop taking this medicine. And what I didn't realize until later was that I was spiraling downhill, just—I um, I was the last person to know what was happening. But finally, one day, I was in the kitchen, and my daughter, who was real young at the time, came up and said, Look, at my leg is bruised. And I thought about that, and I busted out crying, and I was convinced she had leukemia. I mean, mm-hmm. out of nowhere, right? This was the depression talking, though. This is what the chemical imbalance was telling me. And I couldn't convince myself and I couldn't convince my heart any differently. I was just convinced of this thing, which was not true. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point, that was kind of like the bottom line. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go back on medicine, you know, talk to my doctor, go back on medicine. And within several days, I was like, what was that all about? What happened to me? It's like my brain got hijacked. Well, in a way it kind of did because it didn't have the chemistry going on that it needed to function with reality. And I will just say it was a really scary place to be.
3: One of my favorite examples of Jesus, in my mind, really embracing his full humanity and allowing himself to be that emotional human being that That we love about him was the night before he was crucified, you see him pre-grieving something that is really difficult, pre-grieving or maybe just grieving, not even pre-grieving, but grieving something that was coming. And I really appreciate that example of him allowing himself to feel those deep feelings of despair, disappointment, grief, possibly fear um, even though he knew that he must, and even though the plan had been set before him, um, I think our natural tendency is to shove through the hard stuff and not allow us allow a moment for it to, number one, just be present in our body, but number two, for us to really grieve what is coming. And so if we have someone who is sick in our family or we're going through something that is really difficult, You know, it's more likely that we look to all the ways to fix it and move it to the positive outcome instead of allowing ourselves just the moment to say, this is really difficult and I am going to sit in this. And so I just really appreciate his example in the garden the night before. He was very sad and he was very distressed. And I love that human moment that Jesus gave us.
1: I don't, I, I actually don't see anything, um, in the Bible that speaks about mental illness in terms of like how we would define it today. Um, But I do see, and that's why I think like the treatment and the care of mental illness has been, is just debated in the church because there's nothing black and white about it. Um, But the Bible does provide insight in how we should view and respond to those who are battling with their own minds, like with the story of the good Samaritan and with, and with Jesus. Um, And I do see people like, heavy hitters like David and Job and Elijah we were talking about Elijah this morning on the way in that guy was depressed um and maybe even suicidal um and there's this we were kind of joking around about you know he he was so saddened in his in his in his grief that he took a nap and then the lord provided a raven when he woke up and gave him some cake right and that's just I, I mean, said that's
3: what you want when you're depressed: a nap and some cake. A nap and some cake. <laughs> I like that. Um,
1: but we see in the like Jonah, we see these guys uh, dealing with deep feelings of anger and loneliness and despair. And so, since we know that our bodies and our minds can um, can go awry at times, it's, it's it's possible that we are experiencing these things related to literal like chemical imbalances. Which again, we just don't really talk about a whole lot in the church um, because even though I believe God can heal and that He can help us and He can meet us where we're at, sometimes our illnesses are serious enough where we have to seek medical attention. Um, so, how does Life Church respond? This is a question we want to answer. Um, I guess I'll go first because I'm on staff here. Uh, I've always felt like we've provided a safe space for. Uh, People to come in with their stuff, with their sadness, with their grief, with their illness, and to have conversations about it. Uh, We have several resources. We have several contacts of professional therapists here in the Iowa City corridor, um, and then also in in Cedar Rapids. Um, We also have uh, a program here called Ultimate Journey, which I just want you guys to briefly describe what Ultimate Journey is.
3: Ultimate Journey was is a course. I think it was actually. Uh, created by a couple in Des Moines. Um, And what it is, it's 13 weeks long, and it goes back over your life and allows you to explore where you have picked up those um, belief systems that aren't true. And you challenge them with what is true. Um, But what's interesting about Ultimate Journey is that you truly go and get to know what we call our little selves. And um, so you write letters to the younger versions of yourself and then you allow that younger version to respond. Um, you know, there's science to, to back up the way the ultimate journey plays out. But truly what you're doing is trying to find the moment where you picked up um, an unhealthy belief system about yourself and the environment that you're in and the reason why you believed that and then replacing that with what's actually true and what God says about you. It's a very powerful Mm -hmm. course. It's done by trained facilitators. Um, That's important to know. Uh, Class sizes are usually small. What would you add, Bev?
2: Well, you know, we talk about um, like unlearning belief systems Um, Just to give some just genuine examples of what that would be, oftentimes somebody knows, you know, I'm forgiven, like they know it in their head, but locked into them somewhere is the belief that it's my fault that such and such a thing happened, and it makes me guilty, and so I'm washed over with a feeling just a pervading sense of guilt that I can't seem to get rid of. Like another belief is I'm unlovable. And that can come from experiences that happen um, at any point in somebody's life. And we can know God loves me. You know, my family loves me. But deep down, I feel unlovable or I feel worthless or that I don't have any value. So I think those are the kind of, I call them lies. Those are the kind of lies that Ultimate Journey helped to root out and to replace with truth.
1: We also have a program here um, called Celebrate Recovery, which is a Jesus-centered, basically a 12-step program uh, for anyone struggling with hurt or addiction of any kind. Because um, as as we know, um, a lot of the times we try to fill our voids, fill our emptiness with substances, and we can find ourselves in a pickle. And uh, so Thursday night, every Thursday night at six thirty, celebrate recovery meets here, um, and it's also gaining popularity. Also, it's uh, because it's um, it's just an awesome key community, and people are finding freedom uh, with their issues that are controlling their lives. So. Ultimate Journey, um, Professional Therapist Resources, Celebrate Recovery. So those are our global resources with Ultimate Journey and Celebrate Recovery and, um, ther- and the Therapist. But how can we, um, just anyone, just help and intervene? Like, I think we all just want to help as the body of Christ. So how, how can we do that?
2: One of the best things we can do is just come alongside people and um, listen to them and love on them and provide them people in their lives that will let them know they're not alone. I think that's really important.
3: There are the resources that you just listed, honey, are people who are equipped to give really good care. And so if we as a body of Christ are just the ones that are in it with them, and then we can encourage those resources, to me that seems like the best plan of action. I would say to add from my own journey, um, what Bev said about listening is so important. I think that what we want to do is fix people. And what we want to do is save them from what is difficult in their life. And we do that in a lot of different ways, a lot of times with really cliche scriptures. And instead, just providing a space of just listening and then validating what they're going through without the tendency to want to be the savior of their life the people that I felt the safest with to talk to my mental illness were the ones that talked less and asked really good questions. And those that talked over me or compared their stories to me or had all the answers, I felt even more alone in those conversations with them.
2: You know, I think you were talking about the story of Jesus when He was in the garden and He was weeping. I mean, He was in anguish. And what's interesting is He asked three people to be with Him. He didn't do that alone. And I think if we as as um, the body of Christ, can be those three people. We don't have to do anything. I mean, we might accidentally fall asleep, but we're there with them. Right. And I think that's really, really helpful for people.
3: Yeah, and I would say for the person that's helping, markers for them to know whether or not they are adding, you know, doing harm or adding value to the to the person's life is, Whether or not they, if you feel exhausted by someone, if you feel like the relationship, the person feels needy or you don't know how to help them, that's because there's a lack of boundaries in the relationship. So there's this interesting thing that happens, especially for those who are bent more towards service and help and really, you know, love people really well you know we get rewarded when we can help someone and and or we have the answer for them and then that has positive change in their life i mean we in turn feel that reward and it feels good to be needed right mm-hmm. and especially there's a lot especially women you know we seek after that we seek after that reward of being needed it's it's unfortunately how a lot of people even identify themselves but sometimes you know we are ill equipped mm-hmm. for some issues and if we don't have boundaries understanding where we end and the other person begins we can just become overloaded when their crisis or or what they have going on was never ours to fully take on it mm-hmm. was always ours to walk with them but not to fully embody mm-hmm. And so if we are feeling bittered, if we're not answering people's phone calls, if we if the relationship is no longer, you know, doesn't feel safe or or peaceful, um that's less about that person and more about how we miscalculated what we could give.
2: Cuz what we don't want to create is a sense of dependency where one person is building up a dependency on another person right. to the point that the fir- the the person becomes drained Mm -hmm. and, and like Courtney said, becomes bitter.
3: You and I talked about this on The Drive here, and I just wanted to mention this idea of comparative suffering, because I think this happens a lot within different communities, especially within Christian communities. And that's where you take your pain and you rate it, um, you give it a level compared to someone else's pain. And so essentially what that means is that you may be having a really difficult day, something might be, you know, not going great, and you don't allow yourself the opportunity to really feel disappointed or to validate it. Um, Instead, you say, well, you know, there's a war going on in Ukraine and people are displaced from their homes. And so what that does is minimize your own experience and you compare your own pain and your own moment of suffering to someone else's, thus deciding that your suffering doesn't matter. I do that a lot. You do do that a lot. <laughs> but I think it's a conditioned response. I really do. I think it comes out of the different environments that we grew up in. And then I think we subtly hear that in our, in our faith-based ch- places that just say those scriptures that we had talked about that just don't leave a moment for proper grieving, proper feelings of anger, disappointment, being mad. Instead, we just move straight to joy, And um, by doing so, we minimize what we have going on. And so on a personal level, you can validate your own suffering without comparing it to someone else's because they both can be true. You can have a really difficult day and it is terrible what is happening in Ukraine. Both of those things are true.
1: Uh, So before we close out this episode, uh, the last question I want to ask is, is there a difference between um, a pastor using pastoral care? And a licensed therapist. Is there a difference between those two?
2: I think that um, there is a difference in the level of training that a person has had. Um, you know, in order to be a licensed therapist, you have your master's degree in um, mental health counseling or marriage and family therapy. One of those, one of those types of master's degrees, which means that you have. Learn and develop skills that help you to identify various mental illnesses that help you um, go to places with people that assist them in working through places of pain, places of trauma. Um, You also know when it's time to refer them and um, encourage them that they even need more help that goes beyond what your abilities are.
1: And I can identify with that because, uh, as a as a pastor, I, I am confronted with um, uh, all the time with people uh, that just feel very unequipped. Um, mm-hmm. I can care for them, I can pray for them, um, I know the Bible enough to where I can encourage them, mm-hmm. uh, but to go beyond that, um, a lot of the times I feel helpless, and so that makes a lot of sense. Um, that I do that there is a line. At least for me as a pastor, where I need to, okay, um, now you need professional help. Mm-hmm. So that's
2: good. And I kind of see it as cooperative, you know, as we're all working for the same thing to raise up people and help them be the best version of themselves. It's a team effort. And so sometimes when people come in and they have deep spiritual issues, Well, then the referral is, you know, maybe there's, you can go back and talk with your pastor about that. And so the best thing, the ideal is for it to be a cooperative team effort. I I think
3: back to our earlier point about how these conversations haven't been as um, common within our churches. I think pastors had an unfair responsibility to take on issues that they weren't equipped to really, you know, work through and because of that their well-intentioned time with a person ended up causing more harm than doing good and a lot of church trauma stories that i hear a lot of times are rooted in this big miscommunication and uh neg- negligent handling of someone's trauma um and unfortunately that pastor becomes you know the the root of that trauma when in truth he he or she should have never been put in that position.
1: So, know where you end and where someone else may begin.
3: (laughs) Keep your resource list close.
1: Yeah, keep your resource list close. Well, that's very, very good insight, and I want to thank you both again for joining me on this episode, and that concludes this episode of Asking for a Friend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.
0: It was great to hear from Bev, Courtney, and Josh as they discussed, should Christians practice mental health and emotional wellness? If you're currently struggling with your emotional health, you're not alone. We have resources linked below that we talked about in today's episode. And if you have any questions, reach out to one of our pastors here at Life Church. They'd be more than happy to get you connected to the appropriate party. Our contact can be found below or at lifechurchnow.org. If you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, would you consider it? We're on Apple and Google Podcast, as well as Spotify. We're always looking to engage with new questions that are relevant to you. So if you have one, submit it below by following the link. Thanks again for tuning in to asking for a friend. We'll see you next time.